If you guys are checking this out for the first time, you're catching the tail end, likely the last message uh, on a series we've been doing all about the mind of Christ. And it comes out of 1 Corinthians 2 where it says that you have the mind of Christ. And so we thought, that's a pretty bold statement. There must be some implications to that. And so we jumped on to Revelation, which is the gift that we have because we have the mind of Christ. And Revelation is the unveiling of spiritual truths, realities, and the actual thoughts of God in our exact mind. And so we've been wandering through all the different implications of that. Last week we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And if you don't know that uh, verse, it's Galatians 5, 22. I'll put it up here on the screen. And it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And looking at that, that that's supposed to be the outflows. That is supposed to be the results of having Jesus in our life. That is basically the, the characteristics and the attributes of us. And it strikes me that like that list doesn't sound like my life at all, typically. And probably most Christians at large. We read that list and we think of like different people like, well, it doesn't, you know, doesn't really sound like us. And, and so last week we talked about how is it possible that millions of Christians can have the spirit but not have any of its effects? And the truth that we stumble across is that I really believe that God gives us the fruit in seed format. That all of us possess the fruit already. That it's in our hands. And you can have an entire orchard in your hand, but it takes you to plant it into the soil to get the orchard. And that, uh, that we already possess all the fruit, but revelation, being connected to the mind of God and the, his thoughts, is what drives us to know what to do with the seeds and to put them in the ground. And how many know that just because you uh, have something doesn't mean you'll use it, right? Uh, I have a picture of my lawnmower, I believe, possibly. There's my lawnmower. Let me show you my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That is what is called a bale of hay. <laughs> that is an uh, epic husband fail. The fact that you look at my lawn, you'd think that I've never seen a lawnmower in my entire life. I own one. I hate it. But yet, um, I'm, I'm better at, at this now. But the point stands that just because you own something doesn't necessarily mean that you use it. But one of the traps that the enemy tries to get us into is to look at that list about the fruit of the Spirit and say, well, that's what the, the Spirit produces, but I don't have that, so therefore maybe I don't have the Spirit. And maybe I need to like force my Christian life to look like something more of that list. And um, anyways, that's where we kind of left off. Um, I talked about the power team and um, it was a huge bomb. Nobody's ever heard of that, except we have a lone subscriber on our podcast who contacted me this week. Is like, power team, I remember that. It's so awesome. So there, someone, someone remember. Oh, thank you. All right. So I want to talk tonight is about what do we do in light of that the fruit of the Spirit is all those awesome things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Um, and then we have this kind of battle in our minds that we want to try and strive and try to have these things be in our life. And it's completely backwards. And my, my single goal tonight is that none of us would ever look at that, that verse and that list of the flows of the Spirit in the same way again. Is I want to completely abolish every idea that we have about what it looks like to have love, joy, peace, patience, etc., and we need to know that if we are striving at all, if we are trying to have any of those things listed, that it's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's called fruit of the Spirit, not fruit of human effort. 
If we're trying to be good, if we are trying to show love, if we're trying to have peace, if we're trying to do those things, it's not the Spirit. What we're doing is we're producing human effort. And so many Christians try so hard out of striving, but fruit doesn't come from trying really hard. It comes from revelation to say, I have the Spirit. I have all of the outflows of the Spirit, and it's in my hand. It's in seed format. It's, how many know this? If, if you take a, a hammer, and I was tinkering on my dirt bike this past weekend, and like I bang my knuckles, like trying to pull this stupid spring on there, how many know that it's not real joy when like I bang my knuckles, like, I'm so happy right now, I'm filled with joy, like you're like angry, right? You can have such pain, and it doesn't matter what you tell yourself, like, I'm so happy. You're like, no, you're not. Your words are saying it, but what's happening in you is not really that way. And people have the wrong expectation about the fruit of the Spirit. They think that if they have the fruit of the Spirit, they will never, fee- they will never feel fear, anger, sadness, and some of the counter emotions, some of the counter experiences. Listen there. People think that if you have the Spirit, those things go away, which is completely wrong. The fruit of the Spirit is not forcing your emotions and behaviors to a certain way. It's feeling real emotions but then allowing the spirit to overrule what your flesh and mind think and do about it. When you understand that I'm not supposed to be a robot, I'm not supposed to be this pre-programmed guy that does like really charitable acts or things, and you realize that I'm, part of what makes us human is that we feel real things, but what makes us empowered by the spirit is to say, I feel these things, but the spirit says this about that. It's to turn our flesh and our minds off and to apply revelation. So what does revelation look like in the context of fruit of the Spirit? It looks like this, is that revelation aligns yourself with what the Spirit already wants to do. The fruit of that Spirit, that entire list there, revelation is what aligns you to what the Spirit already wants to do, and those are the outflows. So what is striving then? Striving is doing the things that the Spirit isn't asking you to do. If you're striving, if you're trying, if you're really trying to do better in this, you're doing noteworthy things that are not bad in themselves. They're just not what the Spirit is asking you to do. Have, um, maybe, uh, maybe consider this way, that uh, you have had a crazy week. You haven't done laundry in six months. You haven't cleaned a dish. You haven't done all these different things. And a loving friend wants to bless you. And so they break into your house while you're at work. And they look at all the mess. They look at all this stuff, right? And they choose the way to bless you by alphabetizing your bookshelf. And then leaving. <laughs> Gee, that's swell. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Out of the million things you could have thought to do for me in this house with all that's going on, you decide to alphabetize my bookshelf. Right on. I appreciate it. Thank you. I think so many of the things that Christians try to do are like that for the kingdom of God. God's saying there's all these things, there's all these outflows. I'm, I'm giving you such grand opportunity to do amazing things because you have my spirit and you're choosing to spend your time on meaningless effort. If we're going to do something for the kingdom, let's do something that the Spirit wants. Does that make sense? Revelation continually places you in positions of understanding what the Spirit wants you to do. Revelation is what allows you to look at your circumstances and then impart what the Spirit wants. Let me tell you that you can impart whatever fruit of the Spirit 
on your life anytime you want. Anytime you want, you can say, I have the fruit of the Spirit because I have the Spirit and I impart peace. You can impart peace on yourself anytime you want. You can impart patience anytime you want. Why? Because it is the promise of God that he who dwells within you has those things he's given to you. But, but, but all this kind of seems like tough, intangible, kind of vague. So what I want to do is I want to give you some pictures of what this looks like in the fruit to combine revelation with the fruit. Is that okay? This is what I'm really excited about. So what does love and revelation look like? The Bible says God so loved the world, right? If Jesus is not in this room like walking in physical flesh with a bullhorn or a sign or billboards or Facebook, how is he communicating love to his people? It's through us, right? There are two aspects of love. The one that all of us know. One is that we love people from on, or on behalf of ourselves. I love Waterbury. I love Cody. I love my wife. Like on behalf of myself, I show, demonstrate love. That's on my behalf. The other part that everybody always forgets that we never understand is that we love people on behalf of God. One takes the spirit, the other doesn't. This is the fruit of the Spirit. When the fruit of the Spirit says love, it's not talking about that I need to love this person that I I am already in relationship with. It's not that. There's a very different part in this. John 13 says this. A new command, everyone say command. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must. Everyone say must. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And you know that this was spoken before Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. He commanded love. Following a command is not a fruit of the Spirit. It didn't say love, joy, peace, patience, commanding of the you know, commands and obeying them. It's not the same. This is not the same love as described in the fruit of the Spirit. This is obeying. Jesus said before the Holy Spirit ever came, and he wasn't talking about the results of the Spirit. It's obedience. Obedience is a fruit of choice, not of the Spirit. You guys with me so far on that? So what does this mean? This means that we partner with revelation to impart love on behalf of God to somebody else. It's not about me loving my neighbor. One of the most powerful ways that you can love someone that you don't know is to give them a revelation about what God thinks about them. It's not about opening doors for them or being nice to them on the freeway if they cut you off. Like that's not love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that I did not come to you with wisdom but demonstrations of power. Nothing is more powerful than to hear intimate words about your soul from a stranger that completely reads your mail on behalf of God. We see it all the time. We brought people in and, and they go to our prayer ministry and they come back like, you told them all my secrets. Like, I didn't tell them nothing. <laughs> you know? They're just reading your mail because God loves you and we hear on behalf of others so that God would be able to communicate his love to his lost children. Luke 19, does anybody know the end of this? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Came to save and seek the lost. Have you ever witnessed a mother or a father who lost their child in a store? It's intense. That's how Jesus feels about the billions of people that we walk by every single day. We're we're surrounded by all the lost children of God. And Jesus is like, look around, like he, he wants to bring them back. And so we are in the business, we are in the marketplace of reuniting lost children with, the, with their daddy. 
That's what we're here on earth for. And, and, we, and we're connected with Jesus through the mind of Christ and through Revelation to see how we can approach them, how we can bring them back to their father. Another crazy thing, have you ever witnessed a child who completely cuts off their parent? It's like, you know, maybe it's good parents, but the, the, the kids get ticked off, goes away and cuts off all communication. A loving parent will go to no ends to get a message to their son or daughter. They'll like send it to like siblings, friends. They'll like, you know, leave notes. Like they'll, they'll go and do whatever it takes to get the message to those who've cut off communication. And, and so we need to think that the father has a stack in heaven of these love letters to his lost kids and you and I are the carriers of it. We talk about that the fruit of the spirit is love. It is that we carry the thoughts about God to the lost children in this world. And then God allows us to have revelation into their heart, their soul, to prove that Jesus is real and prove that Jesus knows them and wants relationship with them. If we go in there and say, yeah, Jesus will make your life really good. You're not gonna get a whole lot of people, but when you connect with their soul, when you love them on behalf of God because you are hearing from him about them, I, it's amazing what happens in their heart. And that's what we live. That's the difference between the love as love your neighbor as a command and loving others on behalf of God because we are infinitely connected with him. Is that making sense? How about joy and revelation? When you release joy over your bad situation, you create brand new possibilities. Joy is a secret ingredient that changes a situation from having no solutions to many. Revelation reminds you that feeling sorry and disappointed and discouraged gives you no pathway for success. No one, think, no one goes into a boardroom and is like, okay, we gotta figure this out. And like, the only thing they say is, oh, it's hopeless. You know, oh, it's so terrible, it's so miserable. Like you, people don't pull you into planning for that kind of feedback. They want to like figure out ideas and solutions and having this idea that, that hope will make a way. And Revelation gives us that ability to see and gives us the ability to be reminded. So when we are having bummer circumstances, what the fruit of the Spirit does is it gives us revelation to be reminded of things. Paul says, rejoice always. I will say it again. He says, rejoice. It's one of the most like declarative statements in the New Testament for someone to repeat themselves and the language in which he did it, it was so intense. And you know what he says right after that? Rejoice, I say again, rejoice. The Lord is near. In our circumstances, what does revelation and joy look like? Revelation looks like Jesus is near. In this situation, the Lord is near my situation because I have the mind of Christ, because I can seek him. I can see revelation to what's really going on because I have a God who says, when you ask for wisdom, I'll give you wisdom. When we come to our circumstances and we impart joy, it gives us new vision into that because joy is the antidote to despair. If you're feeling discouraged, the best thing that you can do is to seek God and say, Jesus, I pray that you would allow me to have vision for how to have joy right now. And then go have some fun. I don't know. Do something, like change whatever you're doing. If you are bummed out, if you're like discouraged, go get new friends. Do, do something different, you know? <laughs> start, but start celebrating, you know, the joy of the testimony now. Um, a, a successful business guy, he, uh, he talks about like these business troubles and he's like, in his prayers, he's like, Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed, but um, your business has a problem and um, I'm happy to help, 
in whatever solution may come up, but I thank you in advance for the solution you're gonna come up with. And he has these crazy stories about how every challenge that comes up, he begins it with, I don't know if you've noticed, but your business has a problem. I love that. How about peace? Peace is the antidote to anxiety and insecurity. If you're feeling anxious, if you are feeling insecure, it's revealing wrong areas that have your trust and your hope. Anxiety and insecurity aren't normal emotions for the Christian life. And what it does, it just reveals where we're putting things in places where they don't belong. And you almost could say, in the places where I have no peace, I will find all the places I'm trying to control. I can almost look at all the areas of my life and find out, okay, I have no peace in this area, and I'll almost always look at a situation which I'm trying to control the outcome. You could flip it and say, when I try and control the situation, there will be no peace. Revelation says, I can't control. I only can control myself, which we'll get to in a second. Revelation also says that Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus is in us. It's a pretty close phone call, right? You think the prince of peace would be able to cut me a slice of some peace, right? He takes your call if you call. Someone can't pick up the phone if you're not dialing. If we have the Prince of Peace that is within access to us and we're not asking him to impart peace, then how can we expect to have peace accidentally in our life? Revelation also says about peace that I don't have to have a single thought in my head that I don't want in my head. Sometimes we invite negative thoughts, we invite dwelling on bummer situations, and the Spirit wants to tell us that you can stop thinking about it You can stop. No one's forcing you to think those thoughts. No one's forcing you to be held down there. And Revelation looks at our circumstances and declares God is on the throne and we are his heirs. But sometimes we need to be reminded of how the book ends. If you don't know the story in the Bible like Jesus wins, I'll spoil it for you. We watched Jurassic Park a few weeks ago. Great movie. Remember like watching it the very first time? This is not one of those 80s references that nobody gets, right? People have seen that movie? Okay, 90s, 90s. close enough. And like the raptors like in the kitchen or whatever, like click, clack, click, clack, click, clack, you know? Now we're on it. You know how it ends, right? It's still entertaining, but like the edge is taken off. Why? It's because you know the end. Revelation with peace says, I don't have to know all the details, but I am a son and Jesus is on the throne and I know how this story ends. When we look at our circumstances with that perspective, we suddenly get peace in our life. How about patience? Patience is the prayer that nobody wants to pray for, right? Because there's somewhere in the Bible that somebody believes, sorry, it's not in the Bible, but people will tell you it is, that if you ask for patience, God will give you more circumstances to be patient. Terrible, terrible, terrible. That is not in any Greek, that is in not any translation, that is in not in any chapter of the Bible. Because essentially what that is, is saying is that if you want God to give you patience, you're assuming that God's going to curse you. Hello? Amen? Asking God for patience that he is essentially going to curse you with circumstances to treat you a lesson. And then you'll never ask for patience again. What a horrible, horrible theology that is. It's not anywhere in the Bible. You don't need to pray for patience because we have it in full measure. And patience is not self-restraint. It's more self-reminders or self-assurance. It reminds us that God is in charge. 
Patience is knowing that I am a son. It's a reminder that I am powerful. It's a reminder that time reveals all things. How did Jesus show patience in the face of the enemy and about to be betrayed? Look at this in John 13. It says, The evening was in progress. This is the Last Supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus was not impatient because he knew where he came from and where he was going. He had vision and understanding that sustained him to complete his journey. Jesus perfectly knew his mission. And so all the other details of his life were put into context of, I know who my daddy is, I know where I'm going, I know where I came from, I can handle this. Revelation is what gives you the vision to impart patience. Chris Valentin says sometimes, vision gives you purpose for your pain. Or a better way to say it is vision gives purpose to the pain. It allows you to have understanding. It allows you to have clarity. So maybe if you're wrestling with patience in life, instead of asking for God to curse you, which is a terrible idea, maybe you should just ask God for vision into your situation. See, Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit is patience. I have the Spirit, I have patience, but I don't have vision right now. So in order for me to have patience, I ask that you would give me eyes to see what's really going on. Uh, if you become a mother or father, you will realize that a child screaming is one of the most mind, just warring things of your life. It is just, it can drive you to the brink of insanity. Oftentimes, because you don't know why the baby's crying. You're like, I don't know what to do. You know, you're just, you're out of control. Now, how about you work in the ER? And a little infant comes in, not an infant, let me say a toddler. A toddler comes in and something horrible happened. Let's say like the toddler pulled a, a pot of hot water on itself. And the child is screaming, are you gonna get impatient at all? You're like, will someone shut this kid up? Like, you'd, you're not gonna do that. No, why? Because you have vision. You have understanding for what's going on. And God doesn't allow us to lose any patience. We've been given it in full measure. But you can act like you don't have it, but it's just a lie. You have it. You just did a piss poor job of using it. Sorry. <laughs> Next. Kindness and revelation. If someone wanted, just making sure everyone's awake. <laughs> if someone wanted to do something incredibly nice for you, what would they do? They obviously wouldn't alphabetize your bookshelf. No one finds that really kind. <laughs> Kindness is about reaching the heart. We did another message on that God is kind back in the spring. It uh, talks in some more detail, but what Revelation does with kindness is it gives you insight into how to reach someone's heart. Whenever I'm um, traveling back home, I have a mom and off here in the corner there. Say hello, mama. You think preaching's hard, try preaching in front of your mother. That's a whole new ballgame. But whenever I go home, you know what happens is I walk in, there's a sign with my name on it and all these like handwritten notes. And then I go downstairs and there's another sign on like the door and I go inside the room. And so on the bed, there's like my favorite candy. There's my favorite cereal. I have like slippers and towels. I have like crazy stuff, like all the stuff that I love. That is so wonderful. 
that's like genuine kindness. Kindness is reaching someone's heart to know exactly what reaches them and doing that. But niceness and kindness aren't the same thing. Niceness reaches the head. Kindness reaches the heart. Niceness asks, how are you doing? But kindness wants to know the answer and usually already does. Kindness is knowing that you hate doing laundry and your friends come in and surprise you and do all your laundry. That's what genuine kindness. There's innate longing in all of us, all of our hearts. Every heart, I believe, in the world longs to be noticed and recognized by somebody else. And kindness is the vehicle which lines you and their heart together. Kindness is the door that opens up someone to hear you as well. But revelation gives you the specifics on what does this person's heart need right now? What are the details that this person's heart needs to experience in this moment? How about goodness? Goodness is responding to life with good responses. It's um, uh, a verse you might hear me say often is Galatians 6.10, which says, as you have the opportunity, do good to all people. A scary verse in James 4.17 says, anyone who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, to them it's sin. What can we learn from that? The first thing is, as it says, as you have the opportunity, it means that we don't need to fabricate opportunities to do good. If you're trying to invent ways to do good, it's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's not what even Jesus asked us to do. It says, as you have the opportunity, do good. Just respond ones that arise. And what about any good a man who knows he doesn't do it and to him it's sin? How about that? When your heart burns for something that you know you should do and you don't do it, that's sin. Revelation allows you to see the opportunity and to know when God is inspiring you. You don't need to invent trips. You don't need to invent programs. You don't need to like spend all this time. Just all you need to do is just respond to how God presents opportunities. And if you feel moved, then to move. Was anybody here this weekend for the uh, Good News India organization about this crazy stuff there? Amazing. And he had hundreds of people responding to, to sponsor people who have leprosy and, and little girls who've been rocked into the sex slave trade, and it's, it's crazy. But Jesus was never indecisive about doing good. He never was like when the woman had hemorrhaging, bleeding, like, Lord, if you're willing, heal me. He's like, let me pray about it. We'll see. No. What did he say? He says, I'm willing. I'm willing. One of the most profound things that this speaker this weekend says that there are many things you don't need to pray about, that we spend time praying about. <laughs> So many times Christians make themselves indecisive because they've over-spiritualized what God has already made really clear. And that's why we need to have revelation. Revelation allows us to not spend any wasted time in trying to over-complicate things and over-spiritualize it. How about faithfulness? Faithfulness has nothing to do about cheating on Jesus. It, um, it's not like you know, being unfaithful to a spouse uh, faithfulness um, doesn't imply going to church often, doesn't imply being consistent in your Bible reading, doesn't mean you're really consistent in praying. It means none of those. In the Greek, it literally can be translated the conviction of truth. 
To be faithful means to have the conviction of truth or to be like full of faith, if you will. It means that your faith has impacted you so much that it has become your DNA. That there are truths in your life that have reached so far into you that you will never be able to be persuaded otherwise. It's like if I came to somebody and I'm like, hey, uh, you know, you have like two heads. You know that? You wouldn't even check a mirror. You're like, no, I don't. You, you don't even like entertain it. And that is the process of being faithful. It is the reassurance. It is the deep conviction of the truths of God that don't need us to go double check. It doesn't allow us to go and like waver through unbelief. And is this really true? Faithfulness is the establishing of territories in your life where there is no debate about truth. You know how like in the military in the Middle East, they have like no fly zones? I've always wanted to fly over one of those. How about like a no... (laughs) It's establishing no fly zones in your life, in your heart for the enemy to lob lies. You could say it's a no lie zone. Perfect. It's establishing that there is no way that this truth will ever be ripped from my soul, from my heart. Things like that should be, I'm always a son, I'm always a daughter. The revelation and faithfulness reveals how you are uniquely positioned right now to change the world. Revelation and faithfulness understands that God made you possibly to do something that has never been done before. Revelation tells you that God is a creator, not a duplicator, and so that he's going to give you a unique call and a unique mission. Faithfulness doesn't say, we should do this. Faithfulness says, we must do this. You guys hanging in there? Almost there. How about gentleness? Revelation tells us that uh, one-size-fits-all transformation is not how all of us come to Jesus. One of the things we recently did is in our leadership team, we ran around and we just said, what were two things that inspired you for your current transformation? And do you know what the one thing that was consistent across every person who answered? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. No one had the same answer. It was all unique. Everybody had a complete unique journey and transformation. It tells us that in bringing people to Jesus, we need to have context, timing, and measure in the kingdom of God. That it's not fair to the world that we cram our way of what we think Jesus wants down everybody else's throat. Someone say amen. Amen. Paul said, I became all things to all people in order that I might win some. He didn't say, I'm a really smart Jew and just deal with it, you know? (laughs) Some people will come to transformation in minutes, others in centuries. Amen to that by myself. But God isn't concerned about the methodology as long as people know him. Sometimes we can get caught up in like, well, it needs to look like this other thing that I once saw somebody else do on the power team. No, it, it, it doesn't need to be any of that. John 12, 32 says, and I, when I'm lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. Everyone say all. All, all people. And all the Calvinists like shuddered, you know. It says all people. I will draw all people to myself. How do you know that when Jesus says all people, he probably means all people. That's a different message. But all men are being drawn to Jesus. We either can help or hurt that process. Someone say amen. 
that we can either help or hurt the process of people being reconciled to Jesus. And Revelation shows us how to nudge souls in productive ways. I sometimes pick on Waterbury in my uh, messages, but I will tell you that he is the gentlest person I know. And people are like, I don't know that side of him. <laughs> Oftentimes, he is the most direct source of truth, and other times, he stays in your life for years just showing up. So what does that mean about gentleness? Gentleness does not mean that you are weak, quiet, reserved, wussy, or any of those things. What gentleness means is that you understand that everybody has a unique journey and they can handle a measure for this time. And that you give them a measure of truth in which they can handle. Gentleness is about giving only as much as someone is ready for. The reason that we kind of pick on Waterbury is like, well, he gave me all that I was ready, like could have been ready for, you know? Like he doesn't leave any margin there, which is fine but it is giving us customized responses to life. It is appropriate for where someone is now. Gentleness means that you gave someone exactly what they needed when they needed it. It's not about being reserved or meek or mild. It says that I am gonna give people a unique experience of Jesus exactly where they're at for this time, and it's not gonna be one size fits all. Finally, self-control. There is nothing in your life that you are doing that you are not choosing to do. It's a deep one. Let that one kind of go. There's nothing in your life that you are doing that you are not choosing to do. I didn't force to come here as much as I'd like to. I can't do that. <laughs> uh, there's no such thing as, as addiction with a Christian. Why? Because the Bible's made it absolutely crystal clear that you have no master, that you are dead to sin that you are free. The verbiage that Jesus describes us as believers is 100% liberated. It is a, you are not very good at setting the captives free if the captives are still in captivity. Right? There is nothing that we have that we are enslaved to. And what you believe about the strength of a problem, a strength of a, an issue in your life, what you believe about that problem will determine how long you're stuck in it. But when you believe the Bible and says, I've been liberated, I've been free, I've been, I've been made a master of no one, that no one has my number, no one has mastery over me, then we have freedom to get out of the bondage. Revelation says that self-control is not abstinence from addiction. It's about choosing to live with powerful choices. Let me say that again. People think of self-control of all the things I need to not do, right? How about self-control is always choosing the right things? Self-control gives you the power not to just to avoid the wrong stuff, but to always choose what is right. And I really believe that we have the opportunity to live as great of a life as we all choose to live. And when we understand um, self-control, I have self-control. Things like, he made me mad. Don't make sense anymore, do they? No one can make you mad. You can give people permission to make you mad. You can open yourself up to be made mad. You can respond with anger. But no one can force a thought. No one can force an emotion on you. 
That's the fruit of self-control. It's just saying that I am a powerful person and I control what goes in my mind and I can also evict a thought out of my mind. You don't need to think about anything that you want to think about. If you're having a, a challenging thought, say, see you later. I'm going to think about something else. A little dirt biking. You know, like we have the power to change what we're doing and thinking. That's the wonderful thing about the fruit is that it gives us the operational power. Amen? You guys good with that? So that's it. I love you guys.